Murder in the North, Episode 11, The Family Conflict. On the 24th of May, 1999, Norway wakes up to newspaper headlines about a callous triple murder. Elderly couple Marie and Christian Orderud and their 47-year-old daughter Anne have been shot at point-blank range on a farm north of Oslo. In the middle of the night, unknown perpetrators force their way into the house and, there's no other word for it, executed the three with a shot in the neck. No DNA or other forensic evidence is found at the crime scene, but there are empty bullet casings in abundance. The murders are brutal, but above all, perplexing. Marie and Christian Orderud, who are both over 80, retired a long time ago and are well-liked in the community. Christian is suffering from cancer, as did their daughter's husband. He passed away less than two weeks before the fateful evening, which is why Anne is spending Whitsun weekend at her parents' home. Who murdered Marie, Christian and Anne, and why? Questions that remain unanswered to this day. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Yana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Our story is set against the picturesque backdrop of Sørensund, a small town in Norway not far from the Glommer waterfalls. Marie and Christian Orderud live on the farm that Christian built as a young man and has continued to expand over the years. Decades of hard work have turned Orderud Farm into a business worth millions, with livestock, bountiful harvests and rental properties on site. Per, Christian and Marie's son, expects to inherit the land and business one day. He works on the farm while studying for his law degree and eventually chooses life as a farmer over a legal career path. His older sister Anne moves to the big city. She settles in Oslo, where she went to university. She marries one of her fellow students, who secures a job with the Foreign Office, while she works as an executive secretary for several defence ministers. Per Orderud is quite different from his sister. He's an introvert and a bit shy, and nothing interests him more than the work on his parents' farm. He's slender and bright-eyed, with pale blonde hair and a high forehead. He's anything but forward when it comes to women. Nonetheless, one day, a beautiful young veterinary student walks into his life. Per falls head over heels in love with a dark-haired 21-year-old, 
and starts dressing extravagantly in order to impress her. The woman with the big brown eyes is called Veronica, and the love between her and Purr will have fatal consequences. Veronica comes from a poor family and has lots of brothers and sisters. After a childhood marked by precarious circumstances, Veronica sees in Purr the stability that she has longed for her whole life, financially as much as anything. That's what she tells friends and family. Purr and Veronica marry and move into the main farmhouse, while her parents-in-law live in a small bungalow a few hundred yards away. Their house is simply furnished with shabby furniture and an outdated kitchen. But over the years, Purr and Veronica grow used to living a little bit above their means. They own dogs, go to the races, and often buy new cars. Veronica's half-sister and her young son are frequent visitors. The half-sister, who lives in Oslo, is a real city girl. She has a drug habit and flits from party to party. It's no surprise, then, that her son lives with his father. But she's allowed to spend time with the boy whenever she goes to see her sister in the countryside. It makes the farmer kind of sanctuary for her. Her and Veronica don't have children of their own. When they decide to draw up their will one day, they even name the boy as their beneficiary, although they never actually have the document notarized. A few years into the marriage, Veronica finds out that the farmland, the buildings and everything else are still officially owned by her retired father-in-law, Christian. She's upset about it, to say the least. After all, it's Purr who's toiling away day and night without receiving a particularly generous salary for it. Veronica boosts their income by working as a vet. Purr fully expects to inherit Orderud Farm from his parents, and in doing so, fails to take his sister into account. Veronica repeatedly urges him to make the necessary contractual agreements and vents her anger about the matter in her diary. Christian doesn't see it the same way at all. Purr isn't entitled to everything. Anne must obviously have her share too. Christian wants Purr to pay Anne 1.2 million Norwegian kroner, about 95,000 pounds, to buy her out. Purr thinks this is nonsense, but because it is a trifle compared to the farm's total value, he eventually agrees. But shortly before they're due to sign the contract, Christian suddenly changes his mind. His life's work is worth more to him than this. Purr and his father are actually quite similar. They're both extremely headstrong, and the conflict puts a great strain on their relationship. They fail to reach an agreement, and between 1997 and 1999, the families have no contact with each other. It's Saturday, the 23rd of May, 1999, the day before Whitsunday, when Christian's brother visits. He knocks on the door of the small bungalow and is surprised when nobody comes to the door or answers the phone. He sees the car that belongs to his niece, Anne, outside the house, 
but there doesn't seem to be anyone in. However, on the patio at the rear of the house, he notices that the back door has a broken window. He decides to enter the house. Inside, he finds his sister-in-law Marie lying face down in a pool of blood. In the bedroom, he finds Christian kneeling on the bed, his upper body bent forward, his face buried in the duvet. He has died of multiple gunshot wounds. Anne is lying lifeless on the floor, not far from the kitchen table. The floor is strewn with shards of glass. Normally the house, a small two-story wooden dwelling with old furniture, including wooden chairs and a comfortable sofa, is always kept tidy. Seeing that both the silverware and the safe remain untouched, the police rule out a fatal robbery. The crime is so horrific that the regional police force immediately request assistance from their colleagues in Oslo. Together they reconstruct the crime. There appear to have been two perpetrators who entered the house through the back door. They went for Christian first, shooting him in the chest with a 38 caliber revolver. He probably managed to sit up in bed before he was hit. Then the murderers turned him face down to shoot him in the neck with a 22 caliber pistol. Marie was also shot multiple times while she lay in bed, but the bullets missed her vital organs. She crawled over to Christian to see if he was still alive, and then struggled to the back door to call for help. Anne, who was sleeping downstairs, must have been woken by the gunshots. On her way upstairs, she stumbled upon the murderers in the kitchen and was shot. She was killed instantly. As they were about to leave the house, the perpetrators discovered that Marie was still alive. They shot her in the neck, too, but the bullet only grazed her skin, so she probably lived for several more hours before slowly bleeding to death. The murders must have been meticulously planned. The only evidence at the crime scene are the empty bullet casings, a bullet in the parquet flooring, and a partial footprint on one of the pieces of broken glass just behind the door inside. The neighbors didn't hear or see anything. The police search the local area with the help of dogs, but all they find is an orange woolen sock. The autopsy reveals that the perpetrators used two different weapons, a 22 caliber pistol and a 38 caliber revolver. It also looks as if one of the killers is an experienced marksman, whereas the other frequently missed. The investigation receives a lot of media attention, yet all in all there are few leads. But when it emerges that the father-son relationship was much more strained than Per let on during his first police interview, the focus soon shifts to Per and Veronica. It turns out that Per had taken his father to court for not honoring the sales contract. But Christian in turn maintained that the signature on the agreement had been forged and brought a counterclaim. Now the two 
we'll never get to negotiate again. A few weeks later, the police managed to secure a breakthrough in the investigation. Witnesses report seeing two people firing weapons in a forest near Orderud Farm. The two in question are a young blonde woman, Kristen Kirkamo, and her boyfriend, Lars Gronerud, who's already known to the police for theft and drug dealing. The whole neighborhood has been in turmoil since the murders, so the tip-off is taken very seriously. The police question the couple and apply for a warrant to search Lars's home in Oslo. There, they find a large quantity of drugs as well as weapons. These are hidden in a hole in the floor, which has been concealed by a heavy bookcase. But the most interesting discovery is the 22 caliber magazine that's lying on a shelf. It's immediately sent for ballistics analysis. If this was an isolated case, you'd say it was a minor offense. Two people playing with guns. But the woman's name throws a whole new light on the affair. Kristen turns out to be Veronica's half-sister. And with the discovery of the magazine, the police have their first piece of forensic evidence. The bullets that were fired at the crime scene came from this particular cartridge holder. It's easy to verify, as every weapon leaves its own unique markings on a bullet. Kristen and Lars are arrested on suspicion of murder. After a few days of questioning, the pair start talking. Kristen brings up Lars's favorite firearm. Nicknamed Lilgut, it's a 38 caliber which the police believe is the murder weapon. Lars in turn reveals that a year ago, Kristen asked him to arrange two weapons for her sister Veronica. And that's what he did, two 22 caliber guns. Following this revelation, Per and Veronica are arrested too. A total of four persons are now in custody on suspicion of involvement in the murders. But who actually committed the three murders? Who actually fired the fatal bullets? Can't be established with any certainty. How can the prosecutor prove that all four are guilty? The case rests mainly on what Lars and Kristen have said about Veronica and her husband, Purr. Who's telling the truth? Esteemed farming couple Purr and Veronica, or petty criminal Lars and his party-loving girlfriend, Kristen? The judge decides to believe Lars and Kristen's testimony, both during the first trial and again a year later before the Court of Appeal. In both instances, the Norwegian media are out in force. The interest in the murders is such that the hearings don't take place in the courtroom itself, but in the conference room of a stadium. There's widespread speculation in the papers and on television about the lives of the two couples. The investigation is one of the biggest ever undertaken by Norwegian police. No stone is left unturned, no angle unexplored. Every potential witness interviewed a second time. 
and every detail revealed by Kristen and Lars looked into. The Crown Prosecution Service repeatedly calls for further analysis. It takes months just to identify the footprint on the piece of glass. The matching boot is finally located at a trade fair in Italy. Next, the police trace the sales of all pairs of these boots in size six and a half. Receipts reveal that two pairs were sold to the same customer in a shoe shop not far from Lars's home in Oslo, shortly before he drove to Orderud in his white BMW on Christmas Eve, 1998. This together with the ballistic analysis, is a pivotal detail. That same evening, Kristen took the two guns to Purr and Veronica, five months before the murders took place. Both Kristen and Lars state that Lars had shown Purr and his wife how to fire the weapons. He explained how to check whether the chamber is empty and how to take the safety off just before firing. While in prison, Kristen has kicked her drug habit and has decided to put all her cards on the table. She describes the 23rd of December as the day when the murders were planned. Her and Veronica had asked her for pistols and then talked her through the plan of action as well, she says. This included pulling socks over their shoes so as not to leave footprints and wearing disposable overalls to avoid leaving DNA. Kristen offers up more information and tells the police about her sister's anger with her in-laws. Kristen once asked her brother-in-law why his parents had to die over a farm. Don't you understand how serious this is, Purr is said to have responded. It's us or them, you see. According to Kristen, her sister also told her that Purr had forged the sales contract for the farm. For the most part, Lars confirms his girlfriend's testimony, but denies taking part in the preparations. He provided the weapons, but claims not to have known what they were going to be used for. Each of Kristen and Lars's stories is backed up by location data, witness statements, and forensic evidence. On the 22nd of June, 2001, Two years and one month after the murders, the verdicts are read out. The court believes Lars's testimony, and he gets sentenced to two and a half years in prison for being an accomplice to murder. The other three receive the maximum penalty, 21 years. Kristin, Veronica and Purr appeal the decision, and the couple hire their own lawyer, who later manages to refute the police investigation's findings. Veronica and Purr appeal the decision, and the couple hire their own lawyer, who later manages to refute the police investigation's findings. Purr and Veronica don't come across as particularly credible during the trial. While writing in her diary, Veronica repeatedly cursed her father-in-law's stubbornness, and one of the things she jotted down was, I know it's a sin, but I wish him dead pure and simple. Purr commits perjury during many of the court sessions. He lies about the forged contract, about the dire financial straits he and Veronica are in, about the presence of weapons at the farm, 
and about that ill-fated day before Christmas Eve. Then in 2002, before the appeals court, Per finally admits to a major conflict with his parents over Orderud Farm. He confesses to forging the contract and explains using blotting paper to copy the signature on one of his father's old tax returns. He also acknowledges that his relationship with his father had been strained for many years prior to the murders, but both he and Veronica maintain their innocence. The press depicts Veronica as an evil seductress, as someone who managed to persuade her stupid and gullible husband to dispose of his parents for financial reasons. But this is a misrepresentation. While Veronica's diary may demonstrate that she was furious with Christian and Marie, friends and family suggest that it was actually Purr who dominated the relationship with his extreme obstinacy. The police investigate a great many peculiar incidents. For instance, several weeks before the murders took place, a phone call was made to the police switchboard. A lot of manpower goes into tracing this call. In it, a furious man had threatened to kill the Orderudes and had also revealed intimate details about Anne's life, including her husband's cancer diagnosis and subsequent death. The operator who spoke to the man reported the conversation, which lasted more than 10 minutes, to his superior. After the Orderud murders, the police traced 513 phone calls lasting more than 10 minutes. One of the numbers is matched to the home address of Veronica and Kristen's mother, but it's impossible to establish which of the men in the household made the call. Other members of the investigative team look into two attempts on the lives of Anne and her husband. A few years before the murders, a stick of dynamite, without a detonator, is found under Anne's car. Fourteen days after this discovery, petrol is poured through the couple's letterbox in the middle of the night and a bottle of propane gas placed on the doorstep. Luckily, there's no explosion. Nonetheless, the couple move into a safe house in Oslo after the two attacks and later decide to accept a secondment to the United States. Despite a lengthy investigation, the perpetrator is never found. Anne and her husband return to Norway in 1998. A year later, Anne's husband dies of cancer and she is murdered in cold blood. The police now also unearthed some notes that Anne wrote following police interviews about the mysterious dynamite and propane gas incidents. At the time, she and her husband were asked to write down the names of all the people who may have wanted them dead. The most obvious motive for me is the inheritance, she wrote. Among other things, Anne wanted the farm to be divided up, something Purr didn't understand at all. There are attempts to link the attacks on Anne's life and the Orderud murders. Kristen is suspected of having placed the stick of dynamite under the car. And there's a story doing the rounds in criminal circles that it was Lars who bought the explosives. But were Purr and Veronica the masterminds behind these events? 
neither Kristen nor Lars appear to have had a clear motive for harming Anne and her husband. After ten weeks at the appeals court, the jury again rule in favour of Kristen and Lars rather than Purr and Veronica, who keep changing their story. Again and again, Purr gets caught up in his own lies. At first, he claims that he didn't really know his sister-in-law's boyfriend, yet later he's forced to admit that he called him over 30 times, the last time some 30 minutes before the murders. It's very late in the investigation when Kristen is found to have an alibi for the night of the murders. According to her mobile phone's location data, she was driving around Oslo with a friend who was delivering newspapers. The question, of course, is whether it was Kristen herself in the car or just her phone that was being driven around in the night. Per and Veronica make contradictory statements about what they were up to that evening. Initially, they claim to have been away. Later, they're supposed to have been at home. Neighbours say they didn't see the car in the garage that night. On the 22nd of March, 2002, a ten-member jury finds all four suspects guilty of being accomplices to murder. Kristen is sentenced to 16 years in prison, Lars to 18 years, and as the prime suspects, Per and Veronica, are both sentenced to 21 years in prison. Per and Veronica are not in the courtroom when the verdicts are read out. They're listening in another room. When Veronica hears the judgment, she screams and faints. Those who are convicted of killing someone automatically forfeit their right to inherit. As such, Purr immediately loses his claim on the farm. But while he's locked up, he buys the estate for 2.9 million Norwegian kroner, about £243,000. The couple's private detective and lawyer describes their case as a miscarriage of justice and repeatedly submits requests for a retrial. In 2011, Kristen is the first of the four to be released. She has since trained to become a mechanic and consistently refuses to talk to the media. Two years after her release, Lars is also freed from prison. He dies in 2019 after a long illness. Her and Veronica spend 16 years in prison. In 2015, they're both released within a week of each other. They return to the estate where the farmland has long since been leased out. Within less than a month, they file for divorce. Per continues to live alone on the farm that his father built. Veronica breaks all contact with her sister Kristen after a bitter feud over their mother's inheritance. The case is closed and the sentences have been served. For the past three years, Per and Veronica have been waiting for the Norwegian Supreme Court to respond to their request for a retrial of the Orderud murders. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>